data. Numbers, fractions, percentages, charts, ratios, graphs, percentages, fractions, numbers, graphs, projections. Measurements to the most finite figure. This is how the sports world is viewed by many in the age of new technology. Having the ability to analyze your performance or find your opponent's weakness using advanced statistics is almost the norm, no matter the sport. But when there's no sport, no high danger scoring chances, no pace of play, no course seat. What do these number crunching, code mastering, advanced minds do with their time? David Yu is the hockey analytics lead at Sports Logique, an AI powered sports analytics company based out of Montreal. Since the pandemic, David has shifted his focus and talent in finding a way to better serve the medical community. He joins us on this episode of the Sports on Pause podcast. Donovan, one of the major components of sports these days is analytics and data, and particularly the value of data. There's not a day that really goes by where if you are an engaged sports fan, you don't read about a analytics department, whether in the NBA or the NHL, or certainly in Major League Baseball. And it's become such a major component of the game, both organizationally, as well as the media and journalists who are covering the games themselves. At this point, if you want to be an educated sports fan, data is something that you cannot ignore. You're right, Richard. Data is the ultimate currency. It's the ultimate gold mine, it's specifically in sports, but also in the intersection between the way we look at and think about sports and the way we are looking at thinking about COVID-19. You only have to go back to our very first episode where Andrew Morris told us that the Raptors have better data and analytics about their team than we do about this pandemic. And actually, some people in the sports realm are trying to change that. Uh, we're going to speak to Dr. Dan O'Brien later, who considers himself a medical futurist about maybe some of the progressive ways we can start to think about overcoming some of our challenges with science. But actually, it's a scientist with numbers that we should talk to first. David Yu is a 32-year-old hockey analyst and avid hockey fan. He's a big fan of the Winnipeg Jets. But more importantly, he is the team lead of hockey analytics. And he's used his experience at the Montreal-based AI-driven stats company to make some models around how this pandemic is playing out in the United States and beyond. And maybe some of the data that we thought was correct may have been flawed. David Yu is the team lead of hockey analytics at Sport Logique, which is a Montreal-based AI-driven advanced stats company that works with probably your favorite NHL team. They work with most of them. His favorite NHL team is the Winnipeg Jets, but we are not going to get into that today because actually what he's working on is much more important than really what the hockey community is facing. It's what we're all facing. David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And when you've had a bit of a downtime in terms of breaking down sports analytics, how did you transfer that into breaking down what the numbers we are seeing and trying to believe are in terms of this global pandemic we're facing? 
first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's honestly been quite a journey over the last uh, month, month and a half, uh, as as sort of uh, this situation started to intensify, sort of first in China and then sort of in, in Western Europe, and then now uh, more and more in North America and uh, in Montreal, my hometown or current hometown. And it's been sort of a journey um, where, you know, I've tried to take uh, some of the skills that I've uh, developed working uh, at SportLogic on taking data, basically, that we have and, and turning it into, into insights in sort of clear, digestible ways and taking some of those skills and trying to apply it to uh, help with uh, COVID relief efforts. Uh, it's something that, you know, uh, I don't think I'm unique in sort of doing. Uh, as I've started doing this work, you know, I've come across a lot of people um, from all walks of life, from big tech companies uh, down to people helping on the ground, uh, collecting PPE, like some of the, the guests that you've had on the show, like I think uh, Conquer COVID, right? And uh, there's people just pitching in and, and taking their energies and trying to uh, find a meaningful way to to help out in the in the midst of this uh, really unprecedented uh, crisis. If you can, in lay person's terms, which I realize is, is not always easy, can you give us how you came up with sort of your COVID-19 modeling? Like how would one go about creating this kind of way to interpret the data as you did? Um, so I, I'd maybe uh, correct you a, a little bit in saying that, you know, I'm not actually doing uh, any modeling on my own. That's something where from the start, I've put my foot down in, in, in basically saying that, you know, while I do have a background in biology, you know, did my undergrad and in, in, uh, five years of grad school in, in biology, and I do have some data science skills, I really wanted to leave the actual um, projection modeling to the experts. The site that I've created is really just a way to track projections and how they're changing over time and whether they're tracking well, uh, whether these projected forecasts are tracking well with the actual numbers of cases and deaths that are happening. The goal behind this is to help the experts who are, who are doing this modeling better understand whether their models are performing well or poorly, and to basically help them have an easy source of information for the way these projections are trending and, and how they're changing over time. I appreciate you educating me on that. Thank you. I want to ask, how surprised were you that epidemiologists would find your site useful to them to interpret, obviously, the most challenging professional case of their lifetime. Yeah, it's been a bit unexpected, to be honest. When I first started taking a look into this model, I was actually very cautious about what I was putting out there. I didn't want to contribute to to a lot of the noise that was um, that was out there on, on social media. So I ended up sharing my preliminary findings with uh, Carl Bergstrom, who is, you know, a pretty, you know, well- renowned and, and, and prominent uh, epidemiologist who's based out of the University of Washington, uh, who's pretty active on, on Twitter. Uh, I shared them with him initially because I didn't want to put stuff out there that was counterproductive. And it was uh, through sort of like working with him, and it, it's to his great credit that, you know, he 
somehow took time out of his uh, tremendously like busy day to actually look at some of this stuff that people that weren't experts were, were sending in. And it was through that sort of collaboration that um, I was able to sort of help develop this tool. And uh, the tool, at least at the beginning, was was actually meant to be really just used by epidemiologists and, and public policymakers. It's, uh, you know, taken off a lot since then and very unexpected in a lot of ways. But it does obviously feels good to be sort of contributing positively to this effort and trying to be part of the signal and, and not the noise. When I think of sliding in someone's DMs, giving them a COVID projections tracker is not normally how I play that out in my mind. But clearly something prompted you to not only make that connection, but to do a lot of this work. What did your data expose that maybe affirmed uh, something that you had a hunch and, and believed in the first place or brought you to a different finding? Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, you know, I, I haven't done a whole lot of sliding into people's DMs. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> so that's uh, it, it is it is certainly uh, certainly funny in that way where, uh, yeah, I mean, the Internet is this kind of crazy open place and, and you can have these interactions with people that uh, you wouldn't necessarily meet on the street or in your local pub or, or on the in the office. Right. And sort of what I was able to help bring to the table was by giving Carl and, and his colleagues an, an easy way to interactively understand the data. So, you know, I think the credit must go to these like modelers who are who are building these projection models and they're actually releasing all of this data publicly in the interest of, of sort of opening up science and, and having more critical eyes on it, right? It has to be said that like projecting something as new and as novel as this type of virus that's super infective and, you know, obviously quite deadly is very difficult. And they were putting this data out there, but what I was able to help with is, uh, you know, Carl would be downloading these these massive sort of Excel files, and he was only able to kind of take a look at, you know, one piece of it at a time. Uh, by building a tool, uh, we were able to to shed light on how this was performing across many different states and regions and, and countries. And the same issue seemed to be cropping up everywhere, uh, which was that the model, um, at least when we first started taking a look at it, was constrained by basically allowing or requiring that the rate of increase of infections and, and deaths would be the same as the rate of decrease. So the curve of these cases and deaths would be symmetrical. Um, and that's just not what we were seeing in, in places that had sort of hit the other side of the peak. Places like, uh, at the time, Italy and Spain that were sort of starting to come down, they were coming down and they are still coming down much slower, more gradually than they were um, increasing. And what the tool helped show was that maybe there was a problem in the way that uh, this group was was modeling their projections. And Carl was actually able to go into the the paper and and sort of find the equation that was responsible for it. And what's been nice is that since then and and recently, the group that initially put out these projections has updated their model and has changed it so that the flaw that we sort of found together 
has been largely fixed. What you're doing with Volunteer Atlas is really impressive and particularly noble. What was your inspiration for creating this site? The way we built out Volunteer Atlas, it was really as sort of a proof of concept. um, And we wanted to kind of get this out there as soon as possible because we knew that Number one, uh, this crisis was happening. There was a, a tremendous sort of engagement in the early days of the pandemic where people suddenly found themselves having a lot of free time and, and were all, you know, jumping into these caremongering groups on Facebook or mutual aid societies, um, as they're known in, in other countries, to try and provide sort of volunteer deliveries and um, of essential goods to people that uh, really needed to, you know, stay safely quarantined at home. So the first thing that I did was I actually offered to help out in my small condo that I live in here in Montreal. And what was illustrative was that everybody under the age of 60 responded like with, hey, this is such a great idea. We should all help. And we just sent out an email and nobody over the age of 60 responded. And that's when we sort of my partner and I, who sort of started this thing, we really started to think, oh, maybe we need to actually build out something that will make this process easier. We found also that uh, when we were on Facebook looking at a lot of these mutual aid groups, that the systems were very disorganized. Uh, there were multiple groups for overlapping jurisdictions and different groups at the neighborhood or city levels that all were trying to do the same things. And we really wanted to create a a tool that would help coordinate these volunteer efforts. The problem we were focused on solving is in the early days of the pandemic, there was actually a lot of, I mean, there's still actually a lot of really good work being done by these groups that were doing sort of on-demand deliveries. But on-demand deliveries are really tough, right? Like there's really big tech companies like Uber or Foodora, right? Which recently went bankrupt that are trying to do these things. And it's tough because it's a very sort of costly problem, like trying to deliver something by a certain time to a specific place from another place. What we really wanted to build with Volunteer Atlas was like a dense network of volunteers. So rather than doing on-demand deliveries, you would pair up with somebody uh, that lived close to you who was in need of help and hopefully set up a way to, you know, on your weekly grocery run, you could pick up the things that the the person in need uh, requires. Um, so that was the goal behind Volunteer Atlas. We built it out uh, and it got some traction, uh, but the way we were building it out, we couldn't handle sort of user security or some more advanced features as well as we would have liked. And uh, what I think might be illustrative also is that when we found out that there was another organization out there doing something, but with, you know, a team of like 20 engineers from some of these big tech companies like Microsoft and, and GitHub and Google, rather than trying to compete with them, I really, you know, urged the people that had joined Volunteer Atlas to merge our efforts And rather than focusing on working on developing the technical side of things, we've actually uh, taken our team and transitioned our team towards their marketing efforts. Um, So these technical people are really good at advertising to other developers, but they're not as good at advertising their product to the people that might want to use it. And 
we had on our team, we had some success doing that already. So we decided to shift our efforts to focus on helping them get the word out. So that's what my partner now is uh, is fully focused on, uh, leading that side of the operation while I'm sort of here uh, working on uh, on COVID projections. You're used to working on all aspects of hockey, whether it's finding stats or models around passing or face-offs or the cap. What similarities do you find from the type of data collection and analysis that you do normally transfer over to analyzing the pandemic? I think a lot of it is about just trying to turn data into insights, right? Uh, you can have a lot of numbers sitting in a database or an Excel sheet or, or some data source somewhere. And it's very hard for people that don't have the coding skills to access that data, right? The specific thing that's been transferable is this idea of building like interactive visualizations and interactive dashboards. Um, this is just a way to take tools that are sort of uh, off the shelf and try and um, put them together in a way that makes the data easier to understand, easier to sort through and filter and, and sort of dig in deeper into the data without necessarily needing uh, the coding skills. You know, we've built dashboards for passing and, and for other things in hockey. And really, like, it was that skill set that I uh, transitioned over into building uh, both Volunteer Atlas as well as COVID projections. You work in data and you work in numbers. And I think from your findings working at your organization, we become much, much more educated sports fans, in my opinion. That said, I'm always interesting when I talk to somebody who's sort of in the analytics world or numbers-based about, and again, I mean certainly no disrespect from this, but is it possible to have too much data from overwhelming findings about a player or about a team? I guess what I'm sort of trying to get at is, do you ever sort of um, intentionally watch yourself from being too overwhelmed by too much data where maybe the value of certain data gets a little mitigated? It might not have been the best question phrase, but do you, do you see where I'm getting at? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, no, that's a really great question. I think in sort of working in sports analytics, I think a lot of the questions and the, the arguments that I see online are sort of phrased from a perspective where the data and sort of what we see with the eye don't align. And, and there's this sort of dichotomy between like the, the stats guys and the analytics guys and the, you know, the eye test guys and maybe the traditional sort of video scouts. What I think is starting to change, at least among sort of practitioners of analytics and scouts, I think, in the field is that with better data, we're actually able to really start to align the eye test with the stats, right? If you only track things like the outcomes, like in, in hockey, a lot of the work that's been done is around sort of shots and, and sort of shot-based metrics. You know, you're, you're tracking something that happens maybe 120 times in a game, right? When we're starting to take a look at the data that we have now and, you know, like our, our event data, which includes things like passes and receptions and loose puck recoveries, you're really able to shed light on not just the outcomes, but the process, right? It's not just 
the shot that results in sort of the value, you can actually see what happens upstream and the contributions uh, of the people that positively impacted or negatively impacted a play. I think Eric Tolsky is the the one who sort of said it the best. It's with the data that we used to have publicly with, with the NHL, you're turning the lights on maybe, you know, three, 400 times a game. And with the data that we have now, um, we're turning the lights on far more frequently, about once every second. So we have about 3,600 uh, events in a game, and uh, there's about 3,600 seconds, uh, so 60 minutes in an NHL game. So that's the kind of difference now that we're starting to see. And with that comes more stats. You know, you can break this thing down into a million different pieces, but we're also trying to find ways using sort of uh, machine learning approaches to put these things back together into player contributions, into better expected goal models and other tools that help reduce the stats overload that can creep in when you start adding so much data. Well, you are a person that NHL teams comes to so that they can have a better understanding of the information that happens on the ice. As everyone wants to get back on the ice soon, don't be surprised. Keep your DMs open if uh, they're coming after you trying to get a better understanding of what's happening in our communities around us. Thank you so much for spending the time and for putting together such a great tool for all of us to benefit from. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, I want to thank David Yu for his insights. He's obviously an incredibly bright guy who, you know, sort of used his uh, his analytics background and uh, data ability and ability to sort of create really interesting numerical websites, Donovan, to help in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you listen to a guy like David Yu, and it's a reminder of uh, – just how not smart you are, Donovan. <laughs> very, very bright guy. <laughs> he is. Um, and I'm, I guess, maybe pleased that we have smart people both in the field um, working on this and those who are not, who are giving up uh, their time and some of that brain power. And so certainly, um, you know, Mr. You would be in that category. Uh, Mr. O'Brien, our next guest, is in the category of someone who's really smart in the field working on what a return to sports might look like given all the data that we have right now. And our next guest on the podcast, Dr. O'Brien, is a medical expert, a medical futurist, if you will, because he specializes in knowledge and things like telemedicine, digital health, robotic technology, gene editing and augmented reality, even some software technology and AI. And it's funny because we're going to need a combination of those things for society and eventually sports to get back to normal or maybe find a new normal, vastly experienced in this field as a chief medical officer for multiple healthcare startups in the past, an award-winning scientific and academic leader with clinical rotations at Emory University in Atlanta, and a certificate of participation from John Hopkins School of Medicine, which many people know have given us many modules around the coronavirus. 
And the education sports fans, you'll be happy to know the BA is from the University of Notre Dame. So he, I'm sure, has been in the crowd striking up the band, you know, at, just beside Touchdown Jesus. But we have him on Sports on Pause today to maybe make sense of what our society in terms of sports might look like when sports comes back. And thank you, Dr. Brian, for joining us. And let's start there. Sports fans love binary things, wins or losses, a gold medal or silver or bronze. If you were to prescribe how we're doing thus far in this fight with this unknown enemy, the coronavirus, COVID-19, how would you say we're doing in North America? Right. Great question. That, you know, obviously, according to the literature, it seems like social distancing and self-quarantine is really working, right? We're, we're seeing kind of a flattening of the curve, especially as we look at patterns, right? If you look at, you know, China and Italy and now the U.S. as far as this kind of flattening of the curve. So it seems like we're all doing the right thing. You know, Americans are making sacrifices. Um, athletes are making sacrifices in regards to social distancing. So I think we're all doing our part um, during this very unprecedented time. And it's even an unprecedented time in the sports industry as well. Opinions differ on how long we should be doing our part, how much longer. The Bundesliga in Germany is trying to return to play as we speak, to have games kicking off in May. There has been talks of leagues coming back in North America sooner rather than later. What are your thoughts in terms of bringing sporting events back in the near future? Right. As a huge sports fan myself, you know, I'm very optimistic that by mid to late fall, we're going to be cheering for our favorite sports teams. And I think as the economy opens back up in the next you know, couple of weeks to couple months, I certainly think that fall time frame is, is going to make sense. And we'll be cheering on our, our favorite team. And I think the only thing different will be just we have to look at the crowds. Right. And as far as just kind of a stepwise fashion, as well as in regards to public health measures, particularly around, you know, concessions more hand sanitizers around the, the stadium. So we just have to make sure that we're really taking proper precautions moving forward now as this is the new normal. What is your research saying in terms of how comfortable people will be in terms of being in large crowds when sports comes back? Yes. So according to the literature, 72% of individuals don't feel comfortable unless there's a vaccine. Um, developed. And if we look at a vaccine, like that usually takes between 12 to 18 months in regards to getting that developed. So hopefully they can fast track that to be able to get it you know, sooner. But I think as we take steps, we could be able to get back to watching sports, maybe just not at full capacity in regards to stadiums full of people at first, but at least maybe have TV cameras, you know, going where people can still enjoy watching sports, you know, from, you know, the players of their own home. So you mentioned hand sanitizers in, in stadiums when you get your program maybe you get a little bottle of purell or something like that what safety measures can we put in place both for the participants in sports but also for the spectators so that the return to play doesn't having us moving backwards in our fight against the virus Right. Just to kind of start with the participants, I think weekly diagnostic testing could be a really good idea. You know, now there's what's known as a point of care test where the results actually come back within 10 to 15 minutes. And you don't actually have to send it off to a lab. So I think just that quick turnaround or even the development as they look into the future as maybe home based diagnostic kits that some of these athletes could you know, potentially have. 
And I think as far as fans go, again, these safety measures and public health, making sure that, you know, hey, if you're immune compromised, maybe that would be, you know, someone that would be staying at home could be a little bit better of a person to to not come to, to large crowds. And again, making sure these public health measures are implemented and these safety measures are implemented that, you know, if you're in large crowds, maybe wearing a mask or even having a scarf and keeping your social distance, maybe at first, even though it could be difficult, kind of a new norm, could be kind of a first step as we re-engage back into watching our favorite sports team. I want to follow up on the diagnostic testing because you know, part of the question around testing is not just having it done, but also the scarcity of tests. And so we try to flatten the curve so that we can build up some resources in the medical space. Is there an abundance of tests the way you describe to be able to be using them on athletes and not people who are essential workers and first responders? Yes, great question. I think right now the literature is showing that, you know, we still need more tests, but we have to make sure that the tests are accurate. You have to be able to eliminate, you know, false positives or false negatives in regards to a diagnostic test. So it's crucial for us to get this right um, and do it the correct way to ensure that we're seeing, you know, reproducible, accurate, as well as precise results for those that potentially could have COVID-19. We look at these athletes like they're superheroes because we are so in awe of their physical feats when Rudy Gobert tested positive. A lot of people, I think, were surprised because they don't see them as normal people. In terms of being able to stay healthy or to bounce back, do athletes, because of their physical nature and their strong immune systems and respiratory systems, do they have an ability to return from this disease in a different way or just be healthier in a, a way that the rest of the population wouldn't? Yeah, so this is certainly interesting, especially from an immunology standpoint, which is a huge topic right now that if, you know, say an athlete, an NBA player gets contracted with, with COVID-19, their immune systems actually can go in an overdrive. So they can actually have an overactive immune system, which actually can do more harm than good. Overall, you want to have a very, you know, robust immune system and you want to identify ways to boost your immune system, but just want to be cognizant of those athletes that do get contracted with COVID-19. They could just have this overriding and this very much overactive immune system. This is going to be a layered decision-making process. You're going to have medical experts like yourselves. You're going to have, you know, local and federal politicians, but you're also going to have the commissioners and administrators in said leagues if you're in a room with those people and they turn to you and said dr o'brien what is your advice in terms of returning to play and when it would be appropriate and how to do so what would you tell them right i would be confident in saying you know mid to late fall as we're seeing this kind of flattening of the curve and we kind of have an organized plan in regards to how we're going to ha handle this from a public health perspective um, i would be very confident saying that we're certainly you know, going to have a return very optimistic, you know, mid to late fall would be that timetable unless we see a potentially second wave. You know, we do have to be careful that if the data is showing that possibly a second or third wave is coming out again, just like we see with the flu and colds, we do have to be mindful of that. But as of right now, I'm very optimistic as we kind of open up the economy that we'll be cheering on, like I said earlier, our favorite sports team. And just to follow up, when you say mid to late fall, are you referring to a quarantine league, biosphere type scenario where the league is in a relatively clean in terms of the virus spreading area? Or are you saying closer to a turn where teams are playing in their local cities and whatnot? Yes, I feel that teams will be playing in their local cities by that time frame. 
possibly before we may see baseball, professional baseball being played maybe in one location. You know, there's been theories talked about, you know, playing in Arizona where there's a, a lot of different spring training facilities there and it's not such a hotbed for COVID-19. So I think that's where it's important to look at the data and see where geographically COVID is spreading in terms of some of these hotspots. And that might be able to kind of dictate where you could play. Are there pros and cons to the quarantine biosphere type scenarios that we've heard in the NHL and MLB and NBA? Yes, obviously being there live, you know, brings people together. It's such a great, you know, unifier, right? As we're approaching, you know, sports season right now, we're, we're kind of missing out on some of the baseball, which is our national pastime. So being there live is certainly um, ideal. But right now, even what we're seeing in healthcare and even in healthcare technology, this is kind of the new normal that people may have to adjust to for the first, you know, maybe six to seven months before we return back to normal. Well, I'm hoping that the return back to normal is with sports and shortly after with sports and fans cheering because I'm looking forward to being one of them. Uh, for our listeners, if they want more of this information on this topic and others related to COVID-19, drdanmd.com is where your work can be found. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. You're welcome. Happy to be on anytime. Well, our thanks to Dr. Dan O'Brien for his insight and for joining us on the Sports on Pause podcast. And as we do every week on this podcast, we like to close by leaving you with some things to take notice of, whether they're online, a digital piece, or a video that might help educate you, or a program. In this case, and this is something I think optimistic, Everybody who is listening to this knows that Donovan and I both work for Sportsnet, so we're certainly not hiding that uh, uh, we are about to tout some company initiatives. And first off, the Bundesliga, which is, I think, very much a, um, a signal post for North American sports leagues in terms of how it comes back and, and its success or failure in coming back, returns to the pitch this weekend. And you'll be able to see Germany's top teams on Sportsnet starting Saturday, May 16th at 9.30. And that'll be across Sportsnet, Sportsnet One, and Sportsnet World, and Sportsnet Now. And basically, um, it's a chance to watch again a major, major professional sports league. But I think very important for this podcast, Donovan, is that it will provide findings for some of the North American leagues that hope to start up as well. It's a great point, Richard. And I'm actually, you know, selfishly almost excited for Canadians really to be able to dial down and watch Alfonso Davies, not just in highlights or Instagram clips, but really watch him throughout the course of a full match. Uh, so happy that sports has come back. Hopefully uh, they don't have any issues in Germany. Speaking of you know being happy for Canadians, again, I'm going to not pat us on the back because we were not a huge part of it, although we really support the initiative, but pat some people that we work with on the back. You may have seen via social media, and if you haven't, it's not too late to get involved, the Hearts and Smiles campaign. Uh, that's something that you know we've done at Rogers along with the Frontline Fund, which is a national charity uh, to provide some equipment, some resources, even things like mental health counseling and hotel rooms to our healthcare workers across the country who are really doing the layman's tough work and taking on all of the risk for all of us 
with a heart and a smile. So internally, whether it was Christine Simpson or Andrew Sutherland or Deborah Berman or Andrew Goldstein or the countless others who I don't have time to name that put this initiative together with no real benefit to them, we were able to raise 700000 in the first day. And we are still selling masks and t-shirts um, with the Hearts and Smiles campaign on it. Or you can just go to the website and donate. Again, that's heartsandsmiles.ca. We can't say thank you enough to the people who are keeping us safe and healthy. So I was personally happy to be a small part of what our bigger company and really this country did uh, this week to support our healthcare workers. And with that, I say, please stay safe, take care of yourself and others.